We spent some time talking last week, church, about the fact that there are no coincidences or accidents in life. As we've been continuing our series through the book of Acts, we've seen that in the Christian life, the greatness of this God that we worship, the greatness of God that we serve, is such that what seems like accidents or coincidences in life are somehow used and woven by God for His glory, for our good, and for redemption and salvation of the world. And if you've been coming to our church for any length of period, you hear those that theme over and over and over again. Part of you sitting going, I think I heard that sermon before. That's because you have many times. It's been a part of, significant part of, learning about the nature and character of God and the Christian life. Here's the thing, though. We believe it up here, but we don't believe it down here. We don't really believe that even accidents or coincidences are ultimately used by God for those purposes. How do I know we don't really believe it? Because we're a bunch of control freaks. Am I the only one? Control freak? Where does that come from? Think about it. Where, is, where does, where does this, this thing in us come from that makes us want to control and manage and plan and na, 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 when we really know you can't plan and control your life? You can't plan your life any more than you can plan for when that flat tire or the blue line being delayed 15 minutes and all of a sudden we're struck right back into reality. I don't have control over anything. So when we don't believe this truth that ultimately a sovereign God is in control, we take control and the result is anxiety, guilt, worry, concern, It's ultimately actually making an idolatry out of ourselves and our wisdom and our knowledge and our security. So if you sit there and go, yeah, I've heard that sermon of coincidence. Yeah, God uses. Do you really believe it? How do I know? I don't know. How much of your life do you think you're trying to control and manage? How many guys, your, your basement, your house was flooded this weekend? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, I know. I, some of you are like, I'm not feeling it right now, you know. I just bring that up because just a little thing like our basement being flooded, I mean, good God, we can't control that. How do we control and try and manage our 20, 30 years? My life is going to go exactly as I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God. In Acts 25, so over a span of two years, Paul goes through what seems like accidents and coincidences, but un- un- incredibly, incredibly, God is behind it all, orchestrating all of these things in Paul's life, even the hard things, even the hardships of trials, and even injustice in his life to place him in a situation where, unbeknownst to him, he stands before kings, rulers, and leaders of that known city and region to proclaim the gospel. And that opportunity would have never come had it not been for every single incident happening exactly the way they needed to. But here he is about to declare the gospel truth. There are no accidents and coincidences in life. As one famous hymn writer said, everything he sends is necessary. Nothing he withholds, nothing he withholds is absolutely necessary. God, I don't understand these things and I don't know why I'm not getting these things answered right now in the way I want it, God. And Romans 8, 28, in all things, God is working. God, I don't understand how your unwillingness seeming answer to, to answer this prayer and these openings that are closing, God, these hard things that are coming into my life, I can't make out how this would all fit. And God says, 
in all things, God is working. Turn your Bibles to Acts 26. In the sovereign work of God, Paul is standing now in front of, in a room full of kings and leaders and, and authorities to proclaim this gospel. Paul is in chains. And if you remember from last week, do you remember how Paul got here? Acts 25. Acts 25. Paul is under sort of the jurisdiction of the Roman uh, government and the governor overruling that area is a guy named Felix. I'm sorry, it's Festus. And Festus is unwilling to sort of cave in to the wishes of the Jews who are trying to obviously kill Paul, but he also can't send Paul to Rome, to Caesar himself, without some written charge of why Paul needed to be sent. And of course, coincidentally, God provides this opportunity where a Jewish scholar, a Jewish king named Agrippa and his wife, sister, who knows, is in town, and, and Festus says, this is my opportunity. Agrippa will hear what Paul has to say, help me write formal charges that I can send with Paul and Roman troops so that Caesar could ultimately hear Paul. And so Paul is standing now in verse 1 of chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hands and began his defense. King Agrippa. Paul addresses Agrippa as king, even though we talked about last week, he was sort of a puppet king, didn't really have ton of ruler uh, authority. I consider myself fortunate, Paul says, to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusation of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Here's how Paul opens up. He says, King Agrippa, I know that you know the scriptures. I know that you know the Bible. Furthermore, I know that you're an intelligent man. And as I make my defense, you can listen to me, pay attention, sustain long argument. What is Paul doing? He's not just kissing up to him. What is Paul doing? He is getting ready to tailor his message to his audience. Do you remember how we talked about that throughout the book of Acts? Something that Paul was great at that we need to continue to learn is when we are sharing the essence of the gospel, who is our audience and how do we share this in such a way? Let me give you an example. We love to open up and we share the testimony by saying, and the Bible says, what do you do though when you're talking to somebody who could care less what the Bible is and doesn't share your assumption that it is the word of God? You begin at the point of showing them why the Bible is the word of God and is trustworthy. When you're talking about the gospel of Jesus and what he has done, you don't just simply jump in and say, and Jesus said, and Jesus taught, and Jesus, if that person is saying, they're going, Jesus to me is just a good teacher, he was a good philosopher, he was even a prophet, but he isn't the son of God that you claim. What do we do? We begin at the point of saying, let me show you why Jesus is who he said he was. How much of our disconnect with our audience would be minimized if we who is my audience? Who am I sharing the gospel to? And how do I communicate in such a way that they would understand? Verse 4, the Jews all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify if they're willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now it's because my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is really, really important, you guys. Pay attention here. This is the promise our 12 tribes are going to, hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King, it is because of this hope that all the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, what in the world is Paul talking about? Why is this part so important? Here it is. Despite what the Jews thought, and despite what even current us, we Christians, 2,000 years later, think, Paul wasn't starting a new religion. Paul wasn't starting a new faith system, as if the Christian movement, the Christian faith was completely different and devoid of any connections to Judaism and what the Old Testament taught and believed. Paul is saying, listen, listen, I'm not starting a new religion or new faith. I'm just merely proclaiming that what our forefathers, what our ancestors, what you and I have believed for centuries has finally been fulfilled in Jesus. Why is that important? 
What was it that the Jews believed? What was it the Jews held to? What was it the Jews anchored their belief in? Here it is. They believed that according to the Old Testament, according to their prophets, and according to their forefathers, that God was going to use Israel, and from Israel, a Messiah would come forth who would ultimately bring about God's rule and God's reign upon the earth. They believed that ultimately a Messiah would come, a deliverer would come, who would be able to eradicate all injustice, all evil, and reconcile sinful humanity to God. That this would occur. Now, obviously, part of the problem was that this restoration renewal that they thought, they didn't realize it was cosmic. They didn't realize it was international. They narrowly thought of it in terms of their people, the Jews. And furthermore, their land and where they lived. So they primarily thought of deliverance from the Roman oppressors. But all the Jews believed that ultimately that God was going to do this. Now check this out. And a big part of that was resurrection of the dead. Orthodox Jews believed today and believed that a big part of what God was going to do in his work with the world was going to be the resurrection of the dead. That at the end time, that all the righteous and all the faithful of God would be risen from the dead. That's what they believed. And Paul was simply saying, we've believed this for centuries. And he said, but it's happened in Jesus. That's where they had a problem. Because they said, Paul, check this out. First of all, resurrection is going to happen for everybody, not one person. Secondly, resurrection doesn't happen in the middle of history. It's going to happen at the very end. So you're talking nonsense. And furthermore, last time I checked, Jesus didn't quite fit the bill of the Messiah that we're looking for. Why is this critical? Let me tell you why this is critical. Paul does something throughout the book of Acts that is so critical and important for us. Anytime he talked about his Christian faith, he talked about the resurrection. He talked about the resurrection. He talked about the resurrection. So much so that the believers in the early church, if they would have visited our typical churches in America today, They'd go out walking, thinking like this. They'd be like, it's great you're telling me that there are, you know, four ways to a good marriage and five principles to experiencing peace, but how come none of y'all talk about the resurrection? How come none of y'all talk about the resurrection? To which most churches would say, we do, on Easter Sunday. Early believers, every time they talked about Jesus, this is what they said. He died, he rose. We know it. He died, he rose. We know it. He died, he rose, and we know it. That was the essence of what they believed. Early believers would come to our church and go, it's great that y'all talk about experiences and feelings and stuff like that, but why aren't you talking about the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? I'll tell you why this is important. After last service, last week's service, somebody came up to me and said, Pastor Peter, I look at our church and myself, and we just lack faith. We just, all of us just seem to lack faith. And here's my take. This isn't gospel truth. Here's my take on why that is. If we've grown up, some of us in churches, and our perspective of the Christian life, that it's pragmatic, it's practical. So we're taught how to do the Christian life and the things that we need to do. How to be a good Christian. And we're never reminded of the greatness of our God in his death and in his resurrection and the fact that he lives and rules and reigns today. If we're reminded week in and week out, here's what you need to do, a better prayer life. Here's what you need to do to better fast. Here's what you need to do to serve the poor, which are all good things. But if we walk out of here thinking that Christianity is man-centered and what we do rather than God-centered and what he has done, we are going to be people of weak faith. We're going to be people of weak faith. How do I tell a single mother in our church who has Parkinson's disease and a child who has multiple sclerosis? How do I encourage and strengthen her to persevere? By teaching her about how to endure suffering or reminding her that Jesus rose from the dead and he has defeated Satan, sin, and evil. And a day is coming when he is going to rid this entire world of sickness, death, and disease. How do I encourage a young man in our church who fights injustice day in and day out, day in and day out, and he comes across evil, unethical Chicago politicians and rulers? 
How do I encourage that person to hang in there? Talk more about how we should help the poor or remind that person Jesus rose? A day is coming when there will be no more injustice. Do you know what will capture our imagination and why C.S. Lewis speaks so powerfully? Because he didn't talk about principles. He said, winter is almost over. Spring is in the air. Aslan has risen. This is why Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though in outwardly we are wasting away, and inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let me just put it this way. If you find our church unhelpful or impractical because you don't hear enough teaching about ways to live your life, and all your pastor and pastors talk about is the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and is in charge of renewing and restoring this entire world. He started it when he rose. He's going to finish it when he comes back. And that should fuel our hope and motivate us to make a difference in this world. If you're tired of hearing that message and you want to go talk and listen to messages about how to have peace in your life and a good marriage so on and so forth, I could recommend plenty of good churches in the area. But if you want to be reminded week in and week out, along with the things that we talk about, Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. You're at the right place. We are a people of hope. How we think our future will be definitely impacts our present, current circumstances. And there's no better news than to be reminded that awaits us in the future is ultimate restoration, ultimate renewal, where God will initiate shalom, peace, love, and justice. And the world will be filled with the glory of God. Is that good news? Is that good news? It is great news, church. It is great news. Can I just say one more thing? So here's the deal. When it comes to this doctrine, when it comes to this, this, this doctrine of the resurrection that Jesus Christ died and then he rose again from the bed, don't, from the, <laughs> he rose again from the dead. And then I was going to say, saying you can't even get out of bed, but you know, that's, thank you, Michael. Okay. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, this, this, this doctrine don't you ever compromise. Don't you ever be wishy-washy. Don't you ever, ever, ever be insecure about that. But everything else, be humble. Everything else, don't be dogmatic. What do I mean? This is how we are. We're talking to a non-Christian friend. You believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? What? That's so stupid. Well, you know, he could. No. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Period. And then we talk. So we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe. And then they go, the cubs stink. Are you serious? Absolutely not. I stake my life. The c- but what about the resurrection? Yeah, you know, baby. <laughs> I'm talking about even theologians and pastors. Baptism? We will stake my life on bat. And we're wishy-washy about the resurrection. What is that? When it comes to this doctrine, I'm talking to you, follower of Jesus. Don't you ever compromise. Don't you ever be wishy-washy. Stake your life on it. In every other area, be humble because you might be wrong. Don't be dogmatic. You resonating with that, Michael? I'm glad you are because I'm preaching to myself this morning. How often when it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus and the central doctrine that holds us, we're like, eh, maybe, could have. Everything else, we're like, no, no, no. Do the opposite. Be dogmatic about who Jesus is and what he has done. And be humble about everything else because you might be wrong. Most times we are. Verse 9. I too was convinced that I had to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem under the authority of chief priests. I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. 
on one of the many journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. This, by the way, is the third time that Paul shares his testimony. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. And check this out, you guys. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. Check this out. How many of us would our weeks and our lives be different if we take that commission that's not just given to Paul, but you and me seriously? How radically different would our week be like this week, this week? If we took seriously this commission by God, I have appointed you to witness me. I have appointed you to witness me. Throughout the book of Acts, God's been saying this over and over again. Witness of what you have seen in me and what I will show you. What's Paul doing here? He's sharing his testimony, isn't he? Again. He's sharing his personal testimony about how the greatest enemy of the Christian faith was radically converted to become its greatest proponent. Paul is once again sharing his testimony. Just real quick, and then move on. One of the things that us Christians, we put a ton of pressure on ourselves about when we become missional and witness, and we think we have to be the Bible answer man, Bible answer woman. Anybody think that? Anybody feel that pressure? Yeah. One of the best ways that we could witness is via what? Say it with me. Testimony. What your life was like before you met Christ how you encountered Christ, and how your life has been different. Every single one of us that claim to follow Jesus as Lord has a personal testimony of what our life was like before, how we encountered Christ. One of my favorite things is when I sit in, church, uh, I sit in, church, when I sit in my office and a new person that I don't know walks in. One of the favorite things of me is ask them, so how did you become a follower of Jesus? I can't, tell, I can't hear that enough. I can't hear that enough. When's the last time you share with somebody what your life was like before Christ, how it came to Christ, and how he's changed you? A month ago? Six months ago? A year ago? couple things I think that will help. Number one, I think it's critical and important that we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about what our life was like before we became Christ, you know, before we became Christ. <laughs> in light of this week, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody edited that and posted it and said, Peter Hong in New Community is a heretic before we became Christ. He says we can become gods before we met Christ. One of the mistakes I hear some people do is they talk a lot about what their life was uh, before they met Christ. And it's almost like glorifying sin, though. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody gets up and they share these fantastic stories of how evil and wicked they were, and they woo the audience. And we're all sitting there. Some of us going, I can't relate that at all, dude. Second mistake we make is this. Now, glory to We talk too much about how we met Christ. And again, we love these fantastic stories about I was driving. It was 2 o'clock in the morning and the Spirit of God spoke. And I pulled over to the highway and I knelt down on my knees and the heavens opened up and it started. And we're sitting there going, wow. Can I share with you how I became a Christian? This is your pastor, right? I was at church. I was 15 years old, okay? And a teacher, one of our Sunday school teachers got up. He briefly shared the gospel. He said, how many of you guys want to bow your heads, pray, and give this prayer, give your life to the Lord? And, and I did. And I opened my eyes, and my first thought was, I'm hungry. <laughs> Fifteen years old. So that's another thing, too, how we become Christians. It's very, it varies, doesn't it? No, I'm serious, because sometimes we Christians, you know, like I've done this, I've led people to Christ, and I want them to experience this phenomenal electricity. And so after they say, yes, Lord, I ask them, I go, do you feel anything? Do you feel, do you feel anything? No. Are you, are you sure? Like no tingling, like maybe up and down? No, I just... <laughs> when you share how you became a Christian... And third thing, third thing, and this is most important, listen, most important, that is this. Some of us in there go, I don't have a testimony to share. 
I don't have amazing ways that God has delivered me. Amazing ways that I've won victory. Amazing ways that I've overcome the addiction. And we're going, I have nothing to share. You know what the most powerful testimony is for me? When I hear a Christian who's going through really, really hard things, and their testimony is not, and God delivered, I overcame it, and isn't he good? But when that Christian stands up and says, life is still hard, things are still difficult, but God is with me. I'm floored by that. I'm floored by that when I see a Christian who says, God's silence is not his absence. But you haven't found deliverance. You're not free. You're not healed. His hiddenness is not abandonment. God is with me. What a testimony. Psalm 66 2. 16, 66, 16. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. Can you do that? Can you tell somebody what God has done for you? Do you have a testimony of God has been at work in your life? Are you cultivating the habit of seeing all of life as a canvas in which God paints? And some of you, again, I said this last week, just real quick. If you're sitting there and one of those people going, you know what, I don't have any powerful testimony of God answering my prayer. Matter of fact, I've got all kinds of things I'm asking God to do, and he's not doing any of it. You know what you can do? Tell of his mercies. You know what that is? Mercies is when God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. If I can't think of anything that God has come through for me, you know what I think about? I sit there and go, I should have gotten that for that. I should have gotten that for that. I should have gotten that. But I haven't. Why? He's merciful. He doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. What would our small groups be like this week if we went and said, hey, let's... Let's share how God's mercies has been at work in our lives. Let's talk about how we didn't get what we deserved. Because I should be... Let's not go there. Where would we be today? Where would you be today if God treated you as your sins deserved? Tell of His mercies. Verse 17, God speaking, I'll rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Oh, this is so good. Oh, I want to just wrap that verse and just memorize it in memory bank and just hold on to it forever. This is a phenomenal example of Paul, the evangelist at work. Church, let me ask you, who opens people's eyes? Who opens people's eyes? God does. Who enables people to believe? Who enables people to repent and confess and acknowledge your need for God? God does. God does. God is the great evangelist. We've seen this throughout the book of Acts. God works. God speaks. God opens. God moves. So why don't we just chill and relax? We prepare, we study, we, we pray, we read God's word, we build relationships. But when the opportunity arises and we share the gospel, we don't have to put this enormous pressure upon ourselves to go, but what if they don't respond? What if they don't say yes? What if they're not open? What if they're not? Who opens people's eyes? God. Who initiates his conversion? God. Who works in their hearts to respond? God. God does. Along with that reminder, Paul, in these short verses, you guys, this is so powerful. This is so powerful. He lists the critical elements, the critical elements of what is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are three things that he talks about. Need for salvation, the method of salvation, and the ground of salvation. The need for salvation. Do you see that? Look at this verse. Look at this verse. I'll rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Paul emphatically category says every single one of us before Christ, we are spiritually blind. We're spiritually dead and we don't even know it. We can't know God. We don't even desire God. We are spiritually dead spiritually blind 
It's unfortunate that some people might walk into churches and never hear the word sin. Because sin isn't very popular in our culture these days. Would you agree? We call it a mistake. We call it a lapse in judgment. We don't want to call it sin. But here's the thing about the gospel. Unless you are willing to hear and own up to the bad news about yourself, the good news of the gospel will not make sense. The badness of the gospel says that we are great sinners, but the goodness of the gospel says we have a great Savior. What is sin? And why do we need salvation? In one sense, the Bible pictures sin not as a lapse in judgment, not as, you know, a mistake. Sin, in one way, is literally, in its original language, to miss the mark. It is disobedience. It is not living according to God's standard. And the Bible says that we live like this, not just because we're born this way, doctrine of original sin, but because we choose to. And it's interesting in our culture that even non-Christian unbelievers, there's a part of them resonates with this sin nature of us when people like to say, check this out, they go, what? well, nobody's, nobody's perfect. So, okay, so we're in agreement that nobody's perfect. We're in agreement that we all make mistakes and we don't live up to standard maybe that God has set for us. But here's the thing about sin that I need you to understand, especially for those of you that grew up in church. Sin is not just disobeying God. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin and the ultimate essence of sin is a break in relationship. The Bible says we're not just rule breakers. The Bible says we are enemies of God. We're hostile to God. The Bible says the essence of sin is not just doing some bad things, but literally the essence of sin is you and I going, I am going to take charge of my life, and I'm going to live my life the way I want to. You're not my lot. You're not my Lord. You're not my God. I am the Lord of my universe. I am the Lord and master of my faith, and I will live my life the way I want to. We come out on, from under the ruling reign of God where there is life, and we take charge of our lives, and we say, God, I am the God of my life. That's the essence of sin. And here's the thing. The Bible says because God is a God of life, just as a, a, a piece of technology, when it becomes unplugged from its power source, exists but is no longer functional alive, the Bible says when you and I are disconnected from our Creator, who is the living God, we cease to live. And we become spiritually dead. Now here's the thing. We picture spiritual death as the inability to know God and get to know God. But you know what spiritual death is to me? It's when you just exist and you don't live. I've seen people who give up on the will to live. And some of them take their lives because they give up on the will to live. You know why? Because the pain of just giving up on the will to live and just existing is too painful for a human being because we weren't created that way. I'm not talking about some people. I'm talking to you. You might be a Christian. Some of you sitting in here, come on, come on, be honest. You're not living. You're existing. Wouldn't you say a life full of guilt, concern, worry, angst, a life full of meaninglessness. That's not living. That's existing. And the Bible says we become unplugged from the life source and we, we exist and we don't live. And the Bible says he came to give us, check this out, eternal life. And that isn't just some after we die, go to heaven. Eternal life is here and now where God says, you weren't created just to exist on a day-to-day basis, getting up and going, I have absolutely no reason and purpose to live. I was created to live. I was created to live. Things within our souls cry out, I want to live, not just exist. And Jesus says, I've come so that you can live, and not just exist. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Some of you sitting there going, I'm just, I'm just existing. I'm not, I'm not living. I'm, I'm, I'm dead. I might as well be dead. This isn't a life of, what do I do, Peter? What, where do I go? And here's the amazing thing. You ready? You know what God says? Here's how God says you receive life. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't work it. You know what you do? Check this out. What does the Bible say? This is the amazing part. It's the gospel. It's amazing. Woohoo! Look at it. Verse 17. 
I'll rescue from open, and verse 18, to open their eyes and turn from their wickedness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may say with me, oh, come on, like you mean it. Ready? Say with me. They may. Say one more time. They may. Now, why aren't you jumping up and down going, yes? You know why? Gospel isn't real to you. We get all of that. How do we do it? We earn it. We work for it. No. He says, it's a gift. You just simply what? Receive it. <laughs> we are like that person I talked about last week. Somebody comes and offers you $3 million diamond. And your pride is hurt. Because you can't afford it, and you know you can't afford it. So you reach into your pocket, and you pull out 30 bucks, and you go, I want to make myself feel better here. And the person goes, I can't afford it, man. Just take it. I don't want to take it. What do you do when somebody offers you a gift you can't afford? You acknowledge your need, you swallow your pride, and you joyfully receive it and say, thank you. When's the last time you said, God, thank you? For my salvation. That I receive it. I receive it. I don't work for it. I don't earn it. I receive it. Is that good news? <laughs> it's not just forgiveness. It gets better. We also receive something else. There's so much here. What do we do? We not only just receive forgiveness, that's pardon for sin, but we also receive, he says, a place among those sainted by faith in Christ. Check this out. Check this out. Everybody look up here. What do we receive? We don't just receive forgiveness apart from first thing. He says you receive a standing. You receive a place. You receive a status. A what? A status. Sanctified faith, faith in Christ. Sanctified, the word Greek literally means to be set apart. And it's in the past tense. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when you receive this, you don't just receive pardon for sin. And God wipes away your slate clean and throws the slate away. He says you also receive a standing, a status, a place among those who are holy, among those who are righteous. You know what that's saying. They're saying not only do we receive pardon for forgiveness, but when God sees you, he sees you as perfectly holy. He sees you as perfectly righteous. He sees you as perfectly, perfectly, perfectly righteous in Christ. Right then and there. Not later. Right then and there when Christ enters your life. Is that good news? Do you know what that means? That means God will love you. It's not the gospel. God loves you. Period is the gospel. We function as if God will love you is the gospel. You didn't receive. We receive it, church. We receive it freely in faith. And God says right then and there, it's yours. You mean I don't have to work? No, no. But I have to get myself? No, no, no. You receive it. God will love you is antithetical to the gospel. God loves you now. But I've done, it doesn't matter. But I'm gonna, it doesn't matter. It's not your record, it's Christ's record. Praise God. Praise God. The wonderful news of the gospel is this is free. It's received there may be one or two people here today who are not a Christian. You're no conservative as a Christian. And you're sitting there going, but Peter, it just seems too easy. Really? Really? <laughs> Verse 19. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. Oh, I, can't, I can't forget this. Okay. There's so much here. This is the reason why we haven't finished Acts in like two and a half years. Because I get called like this. It also says what? It says this. We have a place. Check this out. What's the next word? Among those. Do you know what that means? That means salvation among. You get joined among. Salvation is not just you and God. It's what? Community. It's family. You don't just get God. You get brothers and sisters. So any non-Christian says, I like Jesus, but I'm not interested in the church. Unfortunately, the Bible says you're going to have to go find another faith system then because Christianity doesn't work that way. You want God, you get them too. But I don't want them, then you're not ready for God. When we become a Christian, we get a place, say with me, among. Not just you and God. Dan, is that good news? I think it's wonderful news. 
Verse 19. So the king Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the visions from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and all in Judea, to the Gentiles also. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Uh, so in case somebody's sitting there going, Peter, you talk a lot about faith and grace, but what about, here it is, you ready? It doesn't say you need to do right to accept Christ and be accepted by Christ, but once you accept Christ, the Bible says you will show the fact that you are genuine by your deeds. There is no fruit, there is no faith. I don't know. If someone looked at your life today, my life today, would they say genuine faith? How do I know? Look at their deeds. They're living it. The Bible is firm in this. There's no easy, cheap grace. You experience this grace, your life will be different. Keep going. That is why the Jew sees me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have ha- got help to this day. And so I stand here testify to small and great alike. I'm, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And finally, we have the third component of the gospel, which is the ground of salvation. By the way, I really hope either you're literally or mentally taking notes. Because if y'all sitting there, you've said, Peter, I want to be able to share the gospel. How do I do it? I just told you in the last 15 minutes exactly how to do it and what to do with your friends. Okay. The ground of salvation. Verse 23. One of the things that I get really about is when Christians go, how do, I, somebody, how do you become a Christian? Well, just believe in God. What do you mean just believe in God? The Bible doesn't say that. How do you become a Christian? It's not just generally believing in God. Because lots of people think Jesus was, you know, some sort of a prophet or teacher. And he was prophet, teacher, par excellence. But Jesus Christ wasn't like Jesus died and rose. Here we see it again. He died and he rose. Salvation comes as we place our faith, not just in the fact that he said some good things, he was a good man. But we place our faith and our trust in the work of Christ, his death, his resurrection. It's when we transfer our faith and our trust and saying, God, I can't approach you on my own efforts. I'll never be good enough. But Jesus Christ lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And in faith in him, in him, in him and through him, in his work. Ground of salvation, Jesus Christ. Death and resurrection. Verse 24. Finish up here. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. You know what? I... I can't remember the last time a non-Christian friend of mine or somebody that I knew as I shared the gospel said this to me because I articulated the gospel so clearly. Is the resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ going to sound like nonsense to our world? The answer? The answer? If you don't know, it's because you've never done it. Try getting up to somebody who is not a Christian and saying, what do you believe? I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died, who rose again, is alive today. They'll say, are you out of your mind? Yeah. Kinda. Are you someone who so articulately and clearly presents the gospel and lives it out that non-Christians accuse of you? You out of your mind? Do you know what I think is the most devastating critique of non-Christians is when they look at you and me and go, you know, you and I, there's nothing different between us. You're just like me. Oh, no. I'll be a fool for Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's alive today, and he's coming back. He's going to finish the job. You're out of your mind. That's what I believe. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. By the way, that's a, that's a pretty good response. You know what I mean? I'm not insane, most excellent Sam. They, 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 they maybe not, will not respond with such hostility if you use the word almost excellent to them. I don't know. My, fr- my friends might not, you know. Uh, so, what I am saying is true and reasonable. I love that. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The Christian faith. Our world thinks, you got to be stupid to believe that. You have to be an intellectual idiot to believe that. Paul says, the Christian faith is reasonable. It's true. You need to be a Christian. Why? Because if you do, you'll have peace in your heart. 
You need to be a Christian. Why? Because if you do, you know, you'll have, you need to be a Christian. Why? It's true. And it's reasonable. You're insane. I know. Kind of. But a most excellent Michael. <laughs> I've given you all kinds of good golden nuggets here this morning, man. Come on now. Okay. Here we go. 26. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. I'm sorry, but there's so much good stuff here. You know what he's saying? Paul's saying to Agrippa, Agrippa, hey, you know that Jesus Christ is alive? And you can see Agrippa going. Paul's going, come on, man. He only died and rose again like 20 years ago. You were there, Agrippa. Come on, you know this. You know all of his enemies tried to purchase a body. They couldn't. You know, some of his followers died believing that you Come on, come on. You, Agrippa, you know it wasn't done in a corner. You know why this is powerful? Do you know why the resurrection belief in it is true and reasonable? There's historical evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And this is one of those. If it wasn't true 20 years later, a bunch of people would have gone and said, Jesus Christ, let me show you his body. Can't find it. Jesus Christ is alive. Let me, t- let me. What? There's thousands of people who saw him alive including Agrippa? Maybe. Agrippa, you know the resurrection is true. What does he say? King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you think you could, you, 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 I'm just paraphrasing. (laughs) You think you can convert me to be a Christian in such a short amount of time, Paul replied, short or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. I love that. You know why? Paul's looking out and going, you all think I'm in chains, right? Uh-uh, I'm free. Y- y'all are in chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or punishment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That's good. That's good stuff right there. That is good stuff right there. I'm going to finish with that, and we're done with it today. I'll tell you why that's so good right there. I'll tell you why it's so good. I'll tell you so good. This is the third or fourth time in the book of Acts that Luke goes out of his way to say, he goes out of his way to say, the followers of Jesus, they're innocent. Paul, he's innocent. The Roman justice system has tried him, and they're innocent. These believers are innocent. These believers have been tried by justice. Do you know why Luke does that over and over again? I'll tell you why. You listening? One of the biggest threats to the early Christian movement was that the enemies of the Christian faith rose up and they said Christianity is bad for society because they can't follow Caesar and they'll make bad citizens. There was a charge that was levied against them over and over again. Christians are bad for society. They'll make bad neighbors. They'll never follow Caesar. They'll create all kinds of civil unrest as the Jews try to accuse Paul. And it's going to be bad for society, so we need to rid of it. And, and Luke says over and over again, Max, no, 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 no. Christians not only not make bad neighbors and bad citizens, they make great neighbors, great citizens who make their cities a better place. Somebody asked, well, wasn't this kind of a religious and pluralistic society where there were many gods? What was the big deal? And that was precisely it. Check this out. This was a society in which there were many gods and people believed many gods. We've seen this throughout the book of Acts, right? So the, all these people had their own gods, you know, in agriculture, in farming. All these people had their own gods in cities and localities. All these people had all these kind of deities. And there were gods all over the place, and it was a religious, pluralistic society. And the reason was this. That was the only way that the door was open for emperors to claim to be king. And God. It opened the door for the society to go, Caesar is not just our emperor, he is God. So when you have a society where a bunch of people are worshiping their own gods and people are used to it, it opened the door for imperial cult to worship emperors. So, hey, anybody, you could claim to have your own god. And by the way, this is the reason why people didn't mess with the Jews. Interesting enough, even though the Jews believe in God, Yahweh, Jews said, he's what? Our god. He's not your god. He's, he's our god. So they looked at him outside and said, okay, he's your god, keep him. But Christianity comes along and says, oh, no. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God over all the other gods. 
By the way, can I just say something? Jesus Christ is Lord. No, 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 listen. He's not trying to be Lord. He's not hoping to be Lord. Oh, Lord, I hope, I hope. I He's not trying, he's not hoping. He is, hello, Lord. Right now. He is Lord as much as gravity is ultimate reality. I don't believe in gravity. I don't think it's true. So I'm going to jump off a tall building. No, you jump off a tall building, you'll break yourself. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's ultimate reality. You break it, it will break you. He's Lord. You bow to him now, or everybody bows to him at one point in the future. So Christianity comes along and says, everybody, everybody, Jesus Christ is Lord over all the other gods. And they said, if you do that, we're going to have chaos in society because they're going to be arrogant, judgmental. You think your God is the only God? You're going to be proud and you're going to want to convert people, impose your views on other people. It's bad for society. And Luke comes along and says, Christians made the best citizens, the best people in the city, and they were great neighbors who made great things for their society and their world. Why? 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 Here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. If you're not a Christian today and you go... I don't like Christianity because it's intolerant. Why? Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. That's intolerant. I don't like it. I always say this. You've heard me say this. If you're not a Christian, you go, I don't like that. That sounds intolerant. Make sure you're not using your intolerance to prove your tolerance. What do I mean? If you say, all religions can lead to God. I accept all religions except Christianity. I can't stand that. It's... You're not tolerant. You're what? You're intolerant. Of Christianity. So if you're going to be tolerant, please be tolerant of Christianity too that says Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and the life. <laughs> secondly, secondly, why was it such a big deal? And why did Christians make such good citizens and neighbors? Here's something you might not understand, friend, if you're not a Christian. The essence of Christianity says that the heart of it is this concept called grace. grace that we have this god who claims to be absolute lord of the universe and he goes to the cross dies on behalf of sinful humanity rises again and here's the thing and we receive we receive we don't earn it we don't merit it we receive forgiveness and acceptance it's by grace so if you ever encounter a christian who's arrogant who's judgmental if you ever encounter a christian who's intolerant that person may have veneer of christianity but he doesn't understand the essence of christianity Because we're not any better than anybody. Matter of fact, we're worse. Because we're not saved by our effort. We're saved by grace. So if you're a Christian who says, I am saved by grace, and I'm judgmental, I'm intolerant, I'm... Do you understand you're truly saved by grace? And secondly, Thaddeus, we're done. Thank you. I'm running out of my voice. Secondly, the reason why Christianity, Luke goes out of his way to say, hey, Christians don't make bad neighbors. Christians don't make bad citizens. They, they make great neighbors, great citizens, and they're great for our city and great for our society. The reason? On the surface, Christianity says, Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. And I believe that. Does it sound exclusive? Yeah, somewhat. But I want you to dig deeper. Go dig deeper. Go dig deeper. And what do you see? What do you see as the truth that we say, Christians, that everybody needs to know, that everybody needs to embrace? It is a Savior on the cross. And the Savior that's at the foundation of Christianity is on the cross, and he is dying for who? He is dying for his enemies. He's bleeding to death for who? People who hate him. He's giving his life for who? People who are mocking him. If you and I take into the depths of our soul this Savior who saves us by His grace and He's hanging on a tree, He's hanging on a tree offering forgiveness and grace to His haters, to His enemies, and His mockers. How in the world can you and I who are Christians, although we believe in the absolute truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, how do we relate to our culture with arrogance, intolerance, and judgmentalness? How do we do that? How do we do that? 
how is it possible that as Christians we embrace this Savior into our hearts and we go out into the world and our culture perceives us as being intolerant, judgmental? Maybe it's because we haven't fully, you know, down to the depths of our soul, gotten this truth. That we have a dying Savior on a cross. Forgiving. And he didn't just tolerate. He went beyond tolerance to embracing radical love. We live in a culture today where people say, fundamentalists are the problem. Fundamentalists are the problem. Religious fundamentalists are the problem. I disagree. It's not fundamentalism that's the problem. It's what are you fundamental about? If you're fundamental about a dying Savior who pours out his life radically for his neighbors and the world, yeah, I want to be that kind of a fundamentalist who pours out my life radically for my neighbors and the world. If our world doesn't listen to our testimony, we can't just shout louder. Maybe they need to see it. Maybe they need to go, can I meet a Christian who absolutely is firm about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and he is Lord? But man, I'll tell you what. They're the most humble, the most radically serving people I have ever met. Maybe we don't look like Jesus to the world because we don't love like Jesus to the world. Let's pray. church are people of the gospel that is to say we are people of grace and radical love do you need more boldness pray that this morning just for a few moments pray that this morning say God let me see you clearly as you are so that I might be empowered with boldness to declare the truth of your death and resurrection in uncompromising, clear way. Do you need more grace and love in your life? Do you need to be known as a fundamentalist for radical love? Are you judgmental? Are you arrogant as a follower of Jesus? Take him deep into your heart deeper and deeper and deeper. In a moment, I'm going to have all of us stand and the worship team lead us. But I want to, I want to gift you this time to pray. stand together
as we respond in worship. That is our reminder. He alone is God. You are the church of Jesus Christ. You represent Him in your world this week. With boldness and just as much bold humility, let them see that we become the best kinds of neighbors and citizens of this city and in our world. Because we embrace a Savior who is about radical, sacrificial love. Take Him deep into your heart, deep into your soul. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As you go forward, please, please, please remember our two needs for children's future volunteers. and the purchase of a new projector. Thank you. Have a great week, you guys. We'll see you back here next Sunday as we continue our journey.